I think there's a lot of, actually, every time we have a missionary partner here, I'm surprised that there's themes that they share that are going to run through the sermon. If you're paying attention, you'll hear it. And maybe the first theme is, um, I don't know, we didn't compare ages, but when I was hired, I was the youngest person on staff, and now I'm the oldest, so I feel that too. I'm like, how did that happen? Uh, But I love our new staff team. It's kind of taken its full shape in the last two years and finally a couple months ago when Stu was officially hired as our worship pastor. And one of the things that I know I missed and I'm now thoroughly enjoying is those spontaneous hallway conversations that you have. You know, you're in your office and you come out and you run into each other in the hallway and you begin to chat. And that happened this week. Actually, Nolan and I ran into each other and Stu heard us talking, so he came out to be a part of it. And We were kind of sharing our days and what we were working on, and they were asking me about the sermon. And I said, you know, right now at that point in the week, I was prayerfully trying to sit with Jesus. And how how we've been talking about this this idea in this part of 2 Corinthians of, of weakness and strength. And I was really just sitting with Jesus trying to figure out how do I communicate this in a way so that our church family feels what Paul's getting at. What does it mean to encounter the strength of Christ in our weakness? And Nolan kind of chuckled a little bit, and he's like, yeah, it's different than when you're in a job interview and you're just spinning your weaknesses into a strength, right? And I was like, yes. And I was like, that's funny. I'm going to Google that, and I'm going to come up with a whole bunch of funny answers to the question, what's your greatest weakness when you're interviewing? But I didn't come across any. There were like funny answers out there, but I came across one joke, so moderately funny jokes, set your expectations appropriately. I don't even have to tell the joke now. You already laughed. I'm good. During an interview, the potential employer asked the young man, what do you consider to be your greatest weakness? The job applicant replied, honesty. The interviewer commented, honesty? I don't think honesty is a weakness. And the young man replied, I don't care what you think. All right, thanks. Feel good. Appreciate it. Anyway, I'm totally, well, we're all going to talk about strength and weaknesses, but in a very cruciformed way, right? We've been in 2 Corinthians, and Paul has been laying out a strong defense. Some opponents have found their way. We've called them, Paul's called them both super apostles, which he will again today, and false apostles. And Paul has been defending himself. Uh, this might not make sense to you if you're newer to Crossview, but it'll make sense if you hang in there. These opponents have essentially brought in what we've been calling a Babylonian criteria to do what you do, what you learn in modern day Babylon. They have been pushing Paul down in order to lift themselves up, right? We, and Paul, in the, in the spirit, in the posture of Jesus, has been saying over and over again, and he will again today, and that's not how I work. I will not push others down to lift myself up. I will only humble myself in order to lift others up. That's the way of the kingdom. But these opponents are playing a game of rivalry, an intense competition. Paul refuses to play the game until he decides, probably led by the Spirit of God, that in this particular case, for the sake and the health of the church in Corinth, he will play the fool. He will answer the fool according to his own folly. And so he is going to, he refuses to boast, but he is going to boast. He is going to play the fool. He'll play their game, but he will only boast in his weaknesses. He will not boast in his strengths. And so 
We kind of started that last week in chapter 11. Paul was setting up and then begins this fool's speech. Uh, It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. I think we had some fun last week. But we're going to kind of finish that part of the fool's speech. It'll wrap up in verse 10, and then we'll go through verse 18 because it's kind of going to wrap up this kind of defense of, of Paul's apostleship, and then we'll finish the letter next week, actually. But if you want to open your Bibles and follow along, we'll pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul's in the middle of this fool's speech. He's boasting in his weakness. He says, this boasting will do no good. I mean, this isn't the way we do things in the kingdom, but I must go on. You forced me to do this. I will reluctantly, okay, I'll tell you about visions and revelations from the Lord. So again, context. We don't know everything. We're just guessing to a degree of what these super apostles, these false apostles are doing as they compare themselves with Paul. But one of the things that we can guess based on this section is that the super apostles are boasting about these visions that they have. And even the way Paul is about to describe his vision, it's almost like the super apostles are probably leaning into, hey, church in Corinth, listen to the vision I had this week and let me tell you every single detail so you know how impressive my vision is. Keep that in mind as we read through Paul here. Verse two begins, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Now, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. We've been doing this, uh, I've told you before, like four of my seminary professors at Trinity, our denominational seminary, were on the translating team. And this is one of the places where if you have a Bible in front of you, there's a little asterisk. And at the bottom, if you have a different translation in front of you, it says, Paul actually says, I know a man in Christ who. But as we get to verse seven, we find out Paul is talking about himself But he only wants to boast in his weaknesses, so he starts in the third person because it actually is, I think, you'll see as the argument unfolds, it it actually was a pretty important experience for Paul. But notice, Paul doesn't pick something that happened this week. He picked something that happened 14 years ago, and I just want you to try to imagine and understand what Paul, I mean, he's having fun here. Try to picture this vision in your mind. He says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. And yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise, somehow in the presence of Jesus, and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. So again, the super apostles, let me tell you every single detail. Paul's like, I can't. You might not be impressed, but I'm only going to boast in my... I mean, that's just that's what he's doing. He's playing the fool. Verse 5, that experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going... I, I will only boast about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. I actually think the Corinthian church was probably surprised to hear that Paul had visions like this because he didn't go around boasting about it. That wasn't his thing. Even though, verse 7, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. Now we're going to take another step. Now you could imagine the super apostles showing up with all their, their letters of commendation, all their criteria for why they're great and Paul isn't. You could imagine that part of their argument would be we're in tight with God. 
We've tried to show you how comfortable, right? Last week we had the contrast of Paul's suffering and his danger versus the comfort, ease, safety, and status of these super apostles. And you could imagine them saying things like, hey, if you have a prayer request, come to me. God always says yes when I pray. I know how to word a prayer. I know how to pray. it. I know what words to emphasize. And God always says yes. Look at, look at how great our life is. I mean, Paul, look at, look at how great our life is. God always says yes when we pray. So what does Paul do in the light of this kind of argumentation? He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. So to keep me from becoming proud because of actually because he's had real experiences with God. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a very famous passage, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. And so here's Paul, super apostles. Every time we pray, God does what we want. Paul says three different times, I beg the Lord to take it away. And God said, no. I prayed and God said, nope, not going to do it. In fact, this is what he said. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. My grace is sufficient. Because you'll know the power of God when you're willing to meet him in your place of weakness. (laughs) Paul says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. I've experienced something in them so that the power of Christ can now work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. I'm content with them. In the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the troubles that I suffer for Christ. We read about those last week. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. So keep those verses in mind, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We're going to come back to that. That's what I want to lean into to try to help us understand a little bit more what it means as disciples of Jesus to live into this life of weakness and strength that we experience in Jesus. Verses 11 to 18, we'll we'll finish this off. Paul's going to kind of wrap up this, this, this part of the letter where he's defending himself. He says, you've made me act like a fool. He's finally done with his speech. You, you ought to be writing commendations for me. But you can tell he's, he's already, this, this made him uncomfortable. I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles, but I'm nothing at all. Like I, I, this whole idea of rivalry and comparison is just not how we work in the kingdom. But these super apostles are leading you astray, and I can't just sit here and watch it happen. When I was with you, I mean, don't you remember? I I mean, Paul was the one who planted the church. I certainly gave you proof. I'm an apostle. I I was patient. And I, among you, we did many signs and wonders and miracles. I mean, you saw, you saw God at work. That's why there's a church in Corinth. That's when my first visit there. And this is, again, it's meant to be humorous. The only thing I failed to do, which I do in the other churches, was to become a financial burden. Please forgive me. Forgive me for not taking more of your money from you, he says. And then he says, now I am coming to you for the third time. Again, the first time he planted the church. The second time was this painful visit that if you were with us earlier in the series we talked about. And he says, I will not be a burden to you. I I listen to this as we talk about Babylonian ideology versus kingdom of God theology. Maybe, maybe this gets us even closer to what was happening. Paul says, I don't want what you have. I want you. 
If you were with us in our previous series where we looked deeply into this theme of Babylon from Genesis to Revelation, one of the things I said is that the powers that be, the principalities and powers, right? Isaiah says the Satan is the king of Babylon. The powers that be in Babylon view you as a means to an end. You are a resource to be consumed so that the powers that be can benefit. And what Paul is trying to say to the church in Corinth is, with me, you are never a means to an end. You are always an end in yourself. The mere fact that God loves you makes you valuable. And you don't need to impress me. I just love you because of who you are. And I know that's a longing in our culture. Maybe you feel that longing. I, I often click on some of these these lists that we find in, uh, uh, in, on the internet. Sometimes I just, what are, what are people saying and thinking? And one of them was kind of this creative, in, in, in the current day we live in, what do you consider a luxury? And one person said this, this, I consider this a luxury. People making friends with one another purely because they enjoy their companionship and not because of networking. I mean, so much of what we experience in modern-day Babylon is how can I use you? How can I leverage this relationship with you to get what I want from you to better my life? Paul says, I won't do that. Super apostles doing it. I won't do that. I love you, not what I can get from you. And then he has this really cool, I think powerful metaphor. After all, children don't provide for their parents. Rather, parents provide for their children. He says, I will gladly spend myself and all I have for you. Again, I will humble myself to elevate you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Even though I'm getting nothing in return right now, you're challenging me, questioning me. I will love that. I will spend for you. And, and I've shared this. Some of you know my dad died when I was 11, and so I just carry this. This, this gaping hole from not having a dad, not having a male role model. I mean, there's been, even in the last three years, there's been times where I just, I really just want my dad, just want him here. And part of that gets, it gets intensified because I'm, I'm the father of a son. And I look at my son and I, and I see how often Jay has two adults who are out there in the world willing his good even when he's not around. And I long for that. I want that. I'm like, is, are there people out there willing my good when I'm not around? Last week, Jay was on a school trip, so he was miles and miles away. And during the school year, Kami and I have to, we do our shopping on the weekends because the weekdays get really busy. And we're out shopping. Jay's miles and miles away. It's like date night in the store, Jeff and Kami. And Kami's going down every aisle. Oh, Jay would like this. Can we get this? For, and my wife is as frugal as can be. I'm like, who are you? Can we get this for Jay? Can Jay have this? And I just, you're, I, and I said, I'm like, you're such a good mom. Like Jay's off. He has no idea. And here you are. All you can do is think about him. You just love this kid. That's what Paul's saying. I am your spiritual parent. I love you. That's what drives me. I love you. <laughs> it's a powerful image. And then verse 16 I did a lot. I could say more, but maybe we'll say more about this next week. I don't know. Paul says, some of you admit I was not a burden to you, but others still think I was sneaky 
and took advantage of you by trickery. I'll just keep reading. But how? Did any of the men I sent you take advantage of you? When I urged Titus to visit you and sent out our brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No, for we have the same spirit and we walk in each other's steps, doing things the same way, the Jesus way, the way of love. I just want to say one thing about verse 16. And I think there's, there's two sides to this. It, just, it, it hits you as a pastor, though. I want to say this. There have been enough failures in the broader church that I, I think it's important to hear your pastor say it is healthy for a church family to be able to question their leaders. I think it's really important. However, at the same time, I feel Paul because I can say with Paul that there are few things more painful and confusing as a leader than when someone questions your integrity when you're being integral. (laughs) And so there's always this tension and balance in church life. I think you always need to be able to question your leaders. But sometimes it's hard for your leaders when they're actually operating out of integrity and false stories are being written about them. That's what Paul's dealing with here. I don't don't deal with that that much here at Crossview. I've been a pastor for a while. I've dealt with it in my past. But I just wanted to call that out because it's an interesting insight into Paul's world. What I want to hone in on is this verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, Paul's thorn and this idea of weakness and power. Again, the important point in the argument is not Paul's abilities or power or his strength. He, he, he is only boasting in his weakness because it's all about God's grace. It's only about God's grace. Paul says he has a thorn in his side, a thorn in his pride. And there's a lot of speculation. I mean, you can read and read and read. I think the most consistent, we don't know, and I think it's good. I'll tell you why I think it's good. We don't know what the thorn is. The most consistent guess is because in Galatians 4, uh, Paul talks about an illness he had in Galatia, and it has to do with his eyes. And so the most consistent guess is some kind of illness that has to do with Paul's vision. Though if you read up on this, you'll find several people think it was epilepsy. But then you also get these guesses that I think tell you more about the scholar than their actual scholarship. <laughs> I mean, one, one person said that, uh, I just think this is hilarious, I'm sorry, but the thorn is Paul's wife. She's the messenger from Satan sent to torment him. I mean, come on, whatever. We don't know is the point. And people will go to extremes to guess. But why I think it's good we don't know is because this is a space where you and I can let this text speak to us about our thorn. Because the point isn't what the thorn was. The point is what Jesus says. Jesus says his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. Now I'm going to walk you through this. I actually don't know that you'll enjoy this. Promise everything's going to make you happy or feel good per se. But I do think this will sound like good news. It'll sound authentic and real. So Paul says it's a thorn from Satan. It's not from God, but God has allowed it. Sometimes God allows things like this. 
You and I might think, especially living in modern-day Babylon, that if it's from Satan, surely Jesus would want to take it away. But in Paul's case, with this specific thing, whatever it is, Jesus doesn't take it away. He essentially says, Paul, this is good for you. Trust me. It's good for you. Now, I assure you, Paul did not want to hear that. That's probably why he brought it up a few more times. What I want to push you to do a little bit, if you're willing, just invitation, is to start thinking of your pain. What is causing you the most pain in your life right now? And what I want to invite you to do is imagine Jesus sitting down to talk about it with you. And you, and, you, and you do what you do, what all of us would do. You ask Jesus to take it away, and maybe he does. I mean, even, even, I mean, because God shows up in different ways to all of us. And maybe even this morning, some of you are set free or healed from some pain. You come to the altar of God. <laughs> and, and Jesus reaches out, and he touches you, and he takes it away. But where I want to push... Again, we're not aiming at comfort, ease, safety, and status as we follow a cruciform Messiah. But what, what, I want you to imagine, what if Jesus says, this pain is good for you, so trust me. I, I hope you know that sometimes Jesus says things we don't want to hear. And I know we don't like to admit it because we've been scripted in modern-day Babylon, but it's not always our weaknesses that get us in trouble. Sometimes it's what we're good at, our strengths, our victories, our successes. We pray for success, and many times those prayers are answered, and we celebrate that. But if you've hung around the family of God for a while, you will learn that too much success can become a stumbling block. And I suppose I should define success for us here this morning. When I say success this morning, I mean success is when we complete the project of making our lives the way we want them to be. I mean, that's kind of a modern-day Babylon definition of success, when we complete the project of making our lives the way we want them to be. But too much success means we almost unavoidably become proud, self-confident, entitled, and maybe most importantly, graceless. And what Paul is saying here is that sometimes that is the time when something pierces us. This thorn sticks us. It's from the devil and it hurts. And I do believe that most of the time God takes it away, but not always. Sometimes God chooses to use this thing that he did not send and it came anyway. I mean, you do know there are spiritual forces against you. Uh, the, the Satan is literally the accuser, the adversary. <laughs> and sometimes God chooses to allow this thorn to remain at least for a season. Why? 
Because, as Paul is saying, sometimes the thorn that punctures our pride becomes the place where the grace gets in. God is not out to hurt you. He's out to help you. He's willing your good, even when you're not aware that he's present. But sometimes it takes pain to get a little grace beyond our pride. And it isn't okay for you to say, I don't like that. I don't want to hear that. But you need to accept it. And in this way, Paul's story looks like the Jesus story. It bears the contours of the cruciform. So I want to lean a little bit farther into this weakness and strength tension. And I'll try to do it. I mean, Paul gave a list last week that we looked at of persecutions. And again, maybe it's happening in Europe. It's, it's not something that we experience quite on that level as Paul described in his letter last week. But I want to lean into this idea of success and failure because I think failure is something we can really connect with in modern-day Babylon. And I know we all feel weak when we experience failure. Now, remember, success is when we complete the project of making our lives the the way we want them to be. We've been scripted in modern-day Babylon, and so we're told what we want and we believe it. We want to be rich. We want to be a winner. We want to be powerful. And we want to be popular. Now, why would Paul play the fool in avoiding this game of rivalry and comparison of the super apostles? Well, it's because he's thought deeply about the story of Jesus on the cross. Remember, the, the Jesus' arm stretched on the cross is our standard of beauty. It's, it's, it's what we measure everything else by. Is it beautiful or not? Well, does it look like the cross? That's beautiful. If it doesn't, it's not that pretty. So let me just ask you, when Jesus hangs on the cross on Good Friday, is he rich? Not at all. Is he a winner? Well, I think everyone standing there would say, Pilate won. Caiaphas won. Herod really won on this one. All hail Caesar, right? Is he powerful? I don't know, a naked man dying, nailed to a tree. I think that's the picture of powerlessness. By Paul's leaning into weakness. Is he popular? Well, the whole city turned on him, and his disciples have either betrayed him, turned against him, or they're in hiding. On the cross, Jesus isn't rich. He's not a winner. He's not powerful. He's not popular. In weakness, Jesus died an apparent failure in the eyes of everyone watching. No one standing there thought Jesus was succeeding when he hung on the cross. The resurrection alone is what makes Good Friday good. No one really thinks Jesus is doing a really good job on Good Friday. There's probably a whole lot of second guessing. He attempted too much. He bit off more than he could chew. He he needed more realistic expectations. He, He should have slowed it down a little bit. Of course, Easter changes all of that. Easter changes the perception that Jesus was failing. But what I want you to hear this morning is that faithfulness often looks like failure, at least until Easter. Faithfulness often looks like failure, at least until Easter. And I know this will sound weird because we've been scripted in modern-day Babylon, but you and I are called to faithfulness and not to success. I know we all want to be the exception to this, 
Ah, I don't know, maybe God's just calling me to success. I know, I know that's not the pattern of death, burial, and resurrection that I see all the way through the Bible, but maybe I'm the exception. But I don't think there are exceptions on this one. I think every one of us have to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And, and then Easter will come. And when Easter comes, we do see Good Friday in a new life. Easter does allow us to go back to Good Friday and reevaluate what we saw and what we thought, but Easter never erases Good Friday. Easter does not mean that Good Friday never happened because Jesus really endured the weakness and the shame of the cross. He really did. <laughs> and if we use Easter to obliterate Good Friday rather than illuminate Good Friday, we end up with a theology of success, which fits right into our modern-day Babylon idolatry. And we start to miss the much deeper theology of Jesus Christ crucified, which I think is at the core of what Paul is doing in Corinth with these super apostles who have come in to challenge his leadership. Well, what does Jesus do? I mean, Paul's learning from Jesus. What does Jesus do at the end of an apparently failing life on the cross? He does the only thing we can do. He puts it all in the hands of the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, of course, Easter happens, right? <laughs> and Jesus is raised from the dead. We thought it was over, but it turns out it was just a beginning. What was the end is now the new beginning of everything. Folks, the Bible says you have to win by losing. To live, you have to die. To succeed, you actually have to fail. That the way up is down. That strength is somehow not only found, but perfected in weakness. So you may be wondering if you have to orchestrate your own failure. Well, I'm feeling strong. Do I need to break my leg so that I'm weak? No, 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 no. Don't do that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Banish that thought from your mind. Life itself will take care of that for you. Don't try to orchestrate your own failure. It'll come in its own good time. But when it does come, it's going to be hard, but this could be life-giving for you. When it does come, when failure comes, when weakness comes, don't fight it as much as you might have in the past. Trust the Father. Maybe you'll remember that Jesus' death was a so-called apparent failure of weakness, but it wasn't really a failure, was it? The way to true success will be on the road to failure at times. And we talk about this frequently, but I want to keep talking about it because there's so many voices pushing us in a different direction. I do believe that one of the best ways to grow in this is to learn how to pray. Learn how to pray non-agenda-driven prayers. I think one of, the, one of the things that surprises me about this text about the thorn in the flesh isn't so much that Jesus says no to Paul, this is actually good for you, but more that Paul has the kind of prayer life where he doesn't just throw his agenda-driven requests out at God and walk away. But he sits with Jesus long enough to hear him speak good news. 
I mean, you and I probably asked for the thorn to be removed 100, 200, 300 times because on that third attempt, we probably aren't still enough with Jesus to hear him say, my grace is sufficient. Trust me. Because we're so sure that we know what is good. We know what success is, getting life to look the way we want it to look. And so we just keep throwing our agenda at God, trying to control everything. And this is just a, this is spiritual formation right here. This is a piece of this. You and I were made in the image of a God who is love. And sometimes we talk about modern day Babylon traffics in fear, tries to, to motivate us and control us with fear, tries to make us afraid of other people. We were created to love. It is really, really, really hard to love people you're afraid of. It's really hard. And in the same way, when you're trying to control everything, you know the best way to control everything is to control the people around you. It is really, really, really hard to love people you're controlling. I mean, if you've been paying attention through 2 Corinthians, Paul goes out of his way to say, I'm not controlling you guys, but I care about you. I mean, we get, sometimes our prayer life is, is so messed up that it, we only pray about our own desires and our own feelings and we never change and we're more shaped by modern day Babylon than we are by Jesus. And we need to learn to sit with Jesus so that we are changed and we begin to look more like Jesus and live like Jesus. And some of us need to get, to get quiet enough to hear Jesus speaking to us and we need to learn to say the words, Father, into your hands. Father, into your hands. I trust you. Yes, this is what I want. Yes, I don't like this, but I trust you. And in the same way that Easter gives us a different vantage point on Good Friday, I think it's interesting. You and I have a very, very different vantage point than Paul, right? From our vantage point, we can see that Paul's thorn in the flesh did absolutely nothing to hinder his apostolic mission, (laughs) Whatever it was from Satan, it was painful, and Paul didn't like it. But from our historical vantage point, it didn't hinder his mission at all. In fact, my my guess is most of us, if not all of us in this room, are Gentiles. And it's probably because of Paul's mission that you and I are believers in Christ. The thorn in the flesh didn't hinder his mission, didn't hinder his kingdom work at all. He didn't like it. He didn't want it. So what about your painful thorn, my painful thorn, the thing poking and sticking us? Well, I want to encourage you to ask Jesus to take it away. We'll pray for that right now. Tell him how you feel about it. You can be honest. He might. He might take it away. And if he does, praise him. Tell somebody. At least ask him three times, maybe more. You probably will. But if he doesn't, then maybe you can reevaluate it. Maybe you can say, I don't like it, but it just might be an access point for grace in my life. This painful place in my life may be the place for God's grace, God's abundant life, God's overflowing love burst forth into my life. A new beginning. Start afresh. And when you get to those places, that's when with Paul you can say, I delight in my weakness. I will boast in my weakness. 
Because when I'm weak, I know the grace of Jesus Christ. It's all I need. And I'm so strong. (laughs) Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we all bear a thorn. But I do want to remind us that you wore a whole crown of thorns. That you drank a bitter cup that you did not want to drink. That even you did not want to go the way of suffering, death, failure, and weakness. We don't want to drink it either. So we do ask, take the thorn away. You know our pain. It's our first, our second, our third prayer. Heal us, deliver us, rescue us. Take the thorn away. But if not, then we pray maybe even more fervently, let it be the place where your grace floods our life. Jesus, either heal us, deliver us, or let us hear you say, my grace is sufficient. Either heal us or give us this word. We need to know you and hear you and experience you. Take it away or remind us of your grace. Teach us of your grace. So we can say when we're weak, we're strong. Because this place of unhealed pain is where your grace flows into our life. And we long for your grace, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.